beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, who come to hear the Word of God, open your ears. You can hear the Holy Spirit might open our hearts to receive from Him this morning what we need to hear in order to be nourished and strengthened as God's people to be faithful to Him, not just in resting and trusting Jesus Christ for our salvation, certainly that, but in obeying Him and moving forward as Christians in our obedience and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. We look this morning, as we're going through Romans 13, uh, and we get to the passage in verse 4 about the sword, that the, uh, the authority does not bear the sword in vain, and thinking about the topic, at least, of capital punishment, of what the, what the sword is, how the sword functions in the state. Um, and capital punishment is certainly a controversial issue, partially because the taking of human life in whatever arena, in whatever context, is a grave and solemn reality. God has made us in his image. Humanity bears the image of God, male and female, created he them in his image. And the taking of the human life, therefore, is of major moment, of major consequence, whether it's done unlawfully, as in murder, or whether it's done lawfully, whether by the state or in war or something else, in self-defense and these different ways that we understand the use of violence that way. Capital punishment itself, that is to say, the use of violence by the state unto death. Capital punishment is the use of violence by the state, by the government, unto death, um, is something that is opposed by many, by very many. You'll find, probably, if you just walked around in in the Northwest here, most of the people you'd run to would have very serious qualms with capital punishment, if not just simply be opposed to it. And there are plenty of reasons that I think we can at least be quite cautious as we, as we move and, and think about capital punishment, and certainly as it's being, as executions occur and so on. Uh, I'm not going to really explore the politics of it or people's considerations, though sometimes the quibbles they have, the problems they have, are very real problems that need to be addressed. Uh, one of them, of course, is false condemnations. Uh, false condemnation, someone who didn't commit the crime is, 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 but is convicted of the crime and sentenced to death. And uh, a number of them later on would find evidence and say, well, this guy really wasn't guilty. Oops. <laughs> and it's, it's an oops if you're sitting in jail for a few years. It's like, yeah, you know, you took some of my life, but now I'm back out and can pursue things of life. Of course, capital, the capital punishment is the ending of the life. Uh, so the oops is a big one, right? So we want to avoid those things. And, and as I mentioned, if there are parameters, even within the scripture that God gives us, to avoid those kind of problems. We don't live in a world of perfect justice executed by humans. It's imperfect justice executed by humans, and we need to recognize that. But God does give us strictures around there to help us avoid some of the injustice that might come with something like capital punishment, as grave and serious of of recompense as that is. Scripture is our guide to faith and life, not just trusting in Jesus and getting to heaven, though that, but trusting in Jesus and living here and now. Living as a Christian now. And the scripture is given to us that we should learn how to live faithfully now. And not just we individuals as Christians, or even we as the church, the people of God, but the very government of this world itself belongs to God, as we've seen from verses prior. God's established it. It's his authority that's at work in the government. And therefore, we're to respect it. Not to be scofflaws, not to be rebels, uh, but to submit to it and hear we see that this is an important reality for what the state is. When we get to this 
chapter, chapter 13, we have a lot of condensed information about what God says the, the, the state is, that human government over us and whatever different levels and capacities it comes. The issue of capital punishment, though, isn't just one of political or social import. I think it's one of uh, theological import. It, it ties in, capital punishment ties into what we call redemptive history. The history of redemption from the beginning when God made Adam, created all things, and then into the fall and, and the flood, as we just read, and actually the institution there in chapter 9 of, of Genesis of capital punishment, and so on. So this, and, and then anything that ties in with the image of God, the Imago Dei, which is exactly what capital punishment is for. Just take a step back. The Bible never says someone needs to be put to death because they really bereaved a family of someone they loved. Like, look at those poor people who are bereaved of the person that this person murdered. Feel bad for them and uh, execute the guy who's a murderer. Those are never the reasons. The reasons are just what we just read, that God has made humanity in his own image, and he demands a reckoning for it. There's something special about each human being that God has made that he demands a reckoning for that life. And demands it not just such that um, he's going to meet it out, but he has been put it in the hands of men to meet that justice out, which is where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 13. So in redemptive history, that is the image of God, which is tied in with capital punishment quite directly, as you read, the image of God is, is a great I don't know, focal point of all of redemptive history. Right? The, the man's created in the image of God, yet that image of God has fallen and besmirched in, in sin. That image is being redeemed in Christ Jesus and will be fully redeemed in Christ Jesus when his work is done. So we have from creation to corruption to, um, to restoration and finally glorification. And the image of God and capital punishment is kind of part of that. So the, the death of humans, the shedding of human blood is part of that redemption and part of the image of God as it goes through. So hopefully some of that will come clear as we, as we think a little bit through the history of capital punishment in the Bible in particular and come right into uh, the fourth verse of our text in Romans chapter 13. So from the beginning, it was not soul. That's what it says in the notes anyway. It was not soul, uh, whether that be the sun or the sun god, soul invictus, if you're familiar with that one. Um, but no, it was not so, is the question, or the, uh, was supposed to be in the text. So from the beginning, it was not so. What do I mean by that? Well, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and said, eat the fruit of that tree and you die. You die dead, is what God said. But they didn't. God, in his mercy, reserved that judgment. We can say there's a spiritual death that's gone on there. You bet. And that spiritual death is the basis, almost the seed, for the flowering of physical death that comes. But God didn't whack Adam and Eve right there. And he certainly could have, and by justice, was free to do so. But we see God's mercy in staying his hand right from the beginning. Right, so God, it's in God both to be absolutely just, and he's all these things all the time, so in talking this way, don't think it's like a set of cards. He plays different cards sometimes or something like that. He's always just. But he's also merciful. He's merciful in his justice and just in his mercy, as only God can be. But we see that going on right from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, who didn't die right away, right, but persisted. God let them persist in life. And how much more Cain? Right? So Cain you know, rises up against his brother, sheds his brother's innocent blood that's crying out from the ground, uh, and pollutes the ground, and God comes and, does he execute Cain? No. 
He doesn't. In fact, he, he puts a curse on Cain, and Cain turns around and says, this is too much for me to bear. And God's even merciful on that. Okay, so I want you to kind of have in mind that it's within God both to execute and to be merciful, depending on what he wants to do. Depending on what God's plan is and what he wants to do. Uh, but here's the thing, and get this, we're not God. It's not our prerogative to decide what we want to do and do it. It's certainly God's. It's ours to obey. I saw some, uh, some meme this week that had Jesus saying, uh, forgive your enemies, and then the bottom picture was, but I'm going to have eternal vengeance on them. And like, like God says us to do one thing, and he does something different. That's the idea. You be nice, uh, I'm going to be the vengeful one. And we say, well, that must be hypo- hypocritical or, or uneven. So, well, we're not God. <laughs> we're humans. We're, we're creatures. And we're fallen. We're under command. So if God commands us to walk a certain way, he commands us to walk a certain way. It doesn't mean he walks that way exactly. He's the creator. We're the creatures. He's God. We're not. And so on. And like just losing track of that very basic distinction. Yeah, we can make Christianity look very foolish. But it's not Christianity that's looking foolish at that point. It's the people that are making the memes. Or worse. But God's mercy is there. God's justice is there. And he operates how he wants. When he wants to extend mercy to a sinner, he does. When he wants to be just and demand the life of a sinner for murder, he does. Now, I'd like to contrast that mercy with Adam and Eve and Cain at the beginning to what happens pretty quickly after it, the flood. Is God's mercy you know, readily observable in the flood from all the people drowning and, and, and dying on the earth? No, that's not the mercy of God. That's the justice of God upon the earth, upon the wickedness of men. That's what we get to when we get finally to chapter 6 of Genesis. Is this, you know, the, the, the intentions of men's hearts are only evil continually. We've got this race of giants that's ruling on you. It's this terrible place. And God says, I repent that I made man. I wish I didn't do this thing. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the same waters that came, the waters of wrath that encompassed the earth, with wrath and death, were the very same waters that bore Noah and his family up in the ark, which is a figure of baptism for us, we learn in the New Testament. After the flood, which is the exemplary reality of God's wrath upon the earth, then we have these mercies as, as Noah comes back from out of the ark onto the earth. So flip back there to Genesis chapter 9, maybe where you were before. So, in addition to the kind of things that he's doing, if they're getting off the earth, it's like the new creation, right? The, the world's being filled with animals again, and Noah comes out and says, have dominion. It's like, it's the new creation. Right? There's something new going on here. But one of the things that's new, maybe a couple of them is, first of all, Adam's now going, or Noah, is now going to be eating animals. That appears to be something new. He says, just like I gave you the green food before, now I give you all the animals to eat, right? And then he distinguishes between clean and unclean and so on. But we start, and Noah starts eating animals, which apparently is something new. Um, and uh, and that the animals are going to be scared of them, right? They're going to they're going to have the fear of man. And even a, a life reckoning is made for animals. You see later on in the law, if uh, if an animal gores a man to death, that the animal's life is forfeit as well. That the man's blood is required even of of the animal in certain circumstances. But he comes down not to uh, not to animals so much, um, but in verse six, what is this classic? place, or locus classicus, for the, uh, the origin here of capital punishment, of the sword of the state, that is to say, the power of violence unto death in the hands of men toward other men, toward other people. 
Verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, God says that if a man sheds another man's blood, say one person is murdered by another, that the murderer, his life is forfeit. And that not only is his life forfeit, it should be taken by the hands of men. Okay, this puts capital punishment, the power of the sword unto death, into the hands of men. God has put it there. Okay, that's, where he, that's where he wants it. And that's, that's, it's important for us because it goes from there. And it runs all through the rest of Scripture. It's really, really hard. Um, I mean, really, really hard to read through the Old Testament and say, yeah, it's, it's, it's against capital punishment. Because okay, it's in any number of places. There are any number of infractions against God. And some of the, God says, no, this is, this, is a, uh, this is an abomination and the person's life is, is forfeit. But aside from the offenses against God and humans, God has given the power of the sword right here in Genesis chapter 9 to men. That is to say, the power of violence all the way unto death. Okay, unto men. And there, there it is. Now, that's just as far as institution. So it wasn't so from the beginning. We see God didn't tell, you know, Adam to uh, execute his son, Cain, because he had killed Abel. Right? But after, after Genesis chapter 9, that kind of thing is exactly what would be going on. If this person's a murderer, then, then uh, his blood should be shed by, by men. Now, you might ask, well, what about the commandments in Exodus twenty thirteen? What about you shall not kill? Wouldn't that apply to killing people judicially or, or the power of the state exercised toward, uh, toward a murderer, for instance? So look at, well, you don't really need to look at Exodus 20:13 exactly, but you shall not murder. In fact, as we have it in the back of our hymnals, it's you shall not kill. Well, go do a word study. Go look up that, that word murder. See how it's used. See how the Bible uses that word. And see how it particularly, how it doesn't use the word. What it doesn't use it for, and it never uses it for executions, right? State executions and the exercise of power unto death uh, in that way, because God's given that to man. That's not murder. It's not called murder in the Bible. So the, the, the translation that we have and we often recite of you shall not kill is kind of not that helpful. Uh, you think, well, so I can't, like, smash a spider that's crawling around, you know, or whatever. Like, is, is any kind of death then outlawed? It's like that's not what the commandment means. It's not what people really studied it have ever thought it's meant, uh, because it's clear that it, it, it's accepted from capital punishment. Warfare is also accepted, I hope, next week, uh, to bring a message on um, the Christian doctrine of, of war, right? just, just war and, and, and what that looks like. And, uh, because Christians aren't pacifists, but they're not too far from it in certain ways, right? There's a, there's a way in which we seek peace and, and abjure violence and, and hate it, um, yet there's a way in which God also sometimes calls us to violence. Um, and we need to sort that out according to the Scripture, not according to our like own feelings or according to the political stuff that we've been taught and how we understand society is absolutely supposed to be, whether we have the Bible in our hand or have read it or not. All that to say, these are hard issues, and we need the Bible in our hand to understand them. That we can walk in the way God has given us by his commandments because we know that by his law we are wiser than our enemies and even than our teachers. That God gives us that through his word, by his spirit. If you turn to Exodus 21, right, after, right next door there to Exodus 20, verse 23 and following. It's an interesting one for verse 22. We'll start. This is um, one of the great texts um, for or against abortion. 
in the Bible. The the very laws of God don't just cover the mother, but also cover the baby in utero, cover the baby unborn. That's the important part here. Um, So that's for for abortion discussions, not necessarily for what we're talking about here. But verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, uh, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If you needed other examples, I suppose those could be furnished as well. Uh, all the way up to, though, you can see the first one is life for life. That is to say, if, if a man strives with another man and either kills a woman or kills the baby that the woman's having, that he forfeits his life. It's life for life. Uh, and so we can see that this ties right in with Genesis chapter 9, that the, the lives of people, the blood of people made in the image of God, those lives are protected by God, and if one of those lives is taken wrongfully, that a life is forfeit because of that. So we have this right from the law of God as well. One of the ways in which this kind of thing occurs, it can occur in a town, and you hear of, of the judges and the husbands that are kind of involved in this particular uh, law here in, in Exodus 21. But we find the development, and you can see it particularly uh, spelled out the most in Numbers chapter 35, of the, of the kinsman redeemer on one hand, um, uh, the avenger of blood, I should say, on the one hand, and the cities of refuge on the other. Now, where are the cities of refuge? If you heard of the cities of refuge, they're interesting. Uh, and there are, there are six of them, though, as I recall, I was looking for it this morning, but couldn't find it. Remember, Chris Lynch told me there were planned to be nine, and there ended up being six cities of refuge. And for him, that was an indication that Israel's not there yet. Kind of, that's got a logical sort of connection. Leave that one aside. Um, but the cities of refuge themselves are cities where if a manslayer, and what's What's a manslayer? Someone who has taken someone's life by accident. Not by premeditation, not because they were angry ahead of time or something like that, but, you know, the classic biblical example of the axe head flying off. You know, you're out there chopping wood, and the axe head goes hurling backwards when you when you pick it up and it nails the neighbor in the head, and down he goes, and that's it for him. Well, you got legal problems, right? Um, you got, it's currently the case, too. You have legal issues, and we have a designation for it in, in our law as well. But uh, for that man, he would be able to flee to, uh, that is a manslayer, someone who killed someone on accident without premeditation and so on. We would flee to one of these cities and stay there safely. Uh, of course, there would be an, an adjudication of him there if he's really a manslayer or if he's a murderer. And if he's a murderer, then his, uh, his life is forfeit. And the, the community there involves themselves in this judgment as, as well. But the, the reason he flees to the city of refuge is because there's someone in the family of the deceased, of the late departed, who got hit with the axe head, say, for instance, who is going to be the avenger of blood and say, you've taken innocent blood, even if it wasn't on purpose, and your blood should be shed. And so, and they come to execute justice in the hands of this, uh, of this uh, avenger of blood. And so the person who's really innocent of taking blood purposefully, can go and hide in the city of refuge. And if he's found to be a manslayer and not a murderer, that's where he hangs out until the death of the high priest. And once the death of the high priest occurs, he's free to leave. But if he leaves before that and the avenger of blood finds him, his life is his own, and he's going to, he's going to lose it if the avenger of blood finds him. This is God's way of kind of executing justice around the same things we're talking about. Guarding the image of God, making sure that we, we value human life because we're made in God's image. And even if life is taken accidentally, 
there's still legal realities and life and death realities built into the recompense for that as well. Now, there's a lot to be said about the Avenger of Blood and the cities of refuge uh, as far as a, a, a chapter in the redemption of God's people and how he meet, wants justice meted out on earth. It wouldn't be proper for us just to look at the you know, Numbers 35 or Deuteronomy 4 or 19 and say, let's do that now. Right? Something happened to one of my kids and I point Calvin to, okay, go get a boy. Um, you know, put a Glock in his hand and send him off to, um, you know, to, to take the blood of the guy who accidentally killed one of our family members. That would be unfaithful to the Bible. There's a period of time where that was going on. Right? And, that's, and then we've moved past that in the scripture and more has been revealed. But there is that period of time. And I think that we see in it this, and this is important to grab, that God takes the, the loss of human life very seriously. Even accidental loss of human life very seriously. And he gives us a type, Christian. He gives us a type of Christ. The city to which we flee. The one in whom we have protection from what really is just vengeance against us, even in our mistakes let alone our purposeful, willful rebellion against God. Jesus Christ is our city of refuge. He is the one in whom we have protection. And I think we need to at least see it that way and recognize that, but also uh, recognize how seriously God takes and gravely God takes the loss of human life, even by accident. So the Old Testament, and I haven't made much of a case for it, but the Old Testament is very clear on capital punishment and its basis. Why it is that if someone sheds man's blood by man, should his blood be shed? Because man is made in the image and likeness of God. That's the reason. Now, I mentioned that and step aside and say it's not the reason that, think of all of the things that, you know, thinking now of abortion or something else, think of all the things that person could have done if they weren't wrongfully killed, and think of the, the grief for everybody, and those things aren't untrue. They're just never the basis on which the Bible tells us uh, the capital punishment is to be meted out is because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And of course, in the law of God, he gives many safeguards so that such justice can be meted out. Well, one example is always having two or three witnesses and cross-examining those witnesses. Right? So we have multiple streams of evidence that come in and show a person is, is guilty. That's important as a safeguard against all sorts of abuses that you can imagine coming out of a situation. And, you know, even with the, uh, the Redeemer or the, uh, the Avenger of blood, you can imagine someone's blood boiling because their loved one just got killed, even if it's by accident. Say, well, you took his life. I'm for sure coming after you with my vengeance. But this isn't an issue of human vengeance. This is not an issue of human vengeance. As we'll hear very shortly, vengeance is God's. But sometimes he's put it into the man- hands of men to execute that wrath. Okay, and that's what we find in capital punishment all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. Now, let's think about that as we come to the sword then in Romans 13. So, we'll flip over to Romans 13 and we'll read it. The appropriate or particular portions here. And I'll just read the first four verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on 
the wrongdoer. Now, last week we looked a little bit at the goodness of government and how God has set up these authorities for our good, uh, not just for the good of humanity generally, though I think that's the case too, but particularly for the good of the believers, for the good of God's redeemed people who actually can see what God's doing, have some semblance of what God's doing on earth and what the, the purpose of these authorities is. Uh, but it's not just for good. It's not just to reward the good and kind of prosper, uh, as we, we said, the peace and, uh, and, in particular, even the godliness of a society. But here it is on the negative side to punish wickedness. Right? And so Paul says, if you do bad, if you do evil, fear. You, sh- you should be scared of the authorities because why? They don't bear the sword in vain. It's not, it's not that they have the sword for nothing. They have the sword for something. And so the question here is, well, what is, what is the sword? What is the sword? Well, the sword is, if nothing else, an image of execution, an image of power unto the taking of human life. Not, not just the taking of human life, like just capital punishment, but the whole range of, of, of penalties, even physical penalties, going up to uh, the taking of human life. I'll flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, just to give an example of the use of this word. And there are a number of times in the New Testament it's used just, just like this, sort of standing for the power of death, or standing for death. Uh, Hebrews 11, verses 34 and 37, sorry, verse 32. So this is, of course, speaking of the various Christians and their experiences, but listen for the word sword and how it goes. And what more shall I say? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight. That's the good, powerful stuff. Uh, And part of the good, powerful stuff that these men are doing in faith is escaping the edge of the sword. They're escaping the sword. What's that mean? They're not getting killed. (laughs) They've avoided the sword. Uh, But you keep going, not so for, for others. On the spot. Women received back their dead in resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. And they went about in skins of sheep and goats, uh, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Okay, so we have this great victory of faith that goes at least two directions. Obvious victories and what would appear to be obvious defeats. Right? Uh, getting sawn in two generally is not understood as a victory. Uh, that's the loss right there, typically. Uh, but in faith, it's all victory. That's kind of the point of the, this, this chapter. Is whether it's conquering kingdoms and establishing justice, or it's being murdered and being chased around and hiding, it's all a matter of faith and victory in Jesus Christ, no matter what lot we have. But just the example there, uh, some escaped the edge of the sword, others were killed by the sword. The sword is a means of death, and I can multiply examples of that in the scripture. The word here, sword, can mean all the way down to like a dagger, though there's a particular word for the dagger that a Roman soldier would wear that's not this one. This one's the, generally a bigger sword, and it's meant to do some damage. Right? It's meant to do some damage to, to somebody else. It is an image of violence. Okay? The sword is an image of violence. And not just an image of violence, an instrument of violence. 
That's why it's the image of violence. It's because the sword is to draw blood. The sword is to do damage. It's very much like handguns. Now we can shoot handguns at targets, and that's kind of fun and whatever else you bet. But, you know, people who carry handguns, what do they carry them for? To kill men. That's what they carry them for. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a means of death that you carry inside your waistband if that's what you're doing. That's what it's for. Same thing with the sword here. It's an image of death because it's a means of death, an instrument of death. And people who want to say, well, listen, it doesn't really mean capital punishment, I think are just simply denying what's obviously on the page. The sword is not given in vain, which means it's to be used, and you should fear if you are an evildoer. Why would you fear? Because they have the power of the sword. They have the power of death, uh, and all the way up into including death for the evil doer. Now, it says here that the, the, the powers that have the sword are ministers of God. They're deacons of God. They're, they're there to serve God. That's what they're for. That's their, uh, th- that is their function as, as the higher authorities that we're to submit to is that they are servants of God, both for good, for our good, to, uh, to establish and promote things that are good, not necessarily like Reformed Christianity, you know, uh, sometimes take a step back, like, the, the government is supposed to impose and, and, and encourage what's good, not necessarily make decisions about theological issues or divisions between Christian bodies. But let me ask you, do you think, just sitting there, do you, th- do you, think, the Christ- do you think that the government of men should support, oppose, or do nothing with the truth of God? Are men who are in power, whether they believe in God, whether they trust Jesus Christ or not, are they, are they, before God, to use their power to promote His truth or something else? And when you put the question in those terms, the answer is obvious. They're required before God to minister unto the truth. That's what they're, that's what they're to promote the good. Not necessarily to promote this brand of Christianity or this theological position or something like that, which is sometimes what happens when these things go down. Uh, that is to say, when the, the power of the state is engaged in Christian theology and worship and so on. But it should be engaged in promoting the truth and promoting the goodness and maybe more on that some other time. But here, certainly in punishing all the way up into including death, the evildoer. So it's impossible, Christian, to take the, the function of government and make it amoral. Right? Like the, like the governor, like the, 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 this, the person who's in power, doesn't have a morality involved in what he and she, or she is doing. Absolutely they do. Before God, they're required to be faithful. Before God, they're required to promote good. And before God, they're required to execute justice, God's own wrath upon the evildoer. And that's what I want to kind of draw into right now quickly, is that this, this execution, say if we have a, a convicted murderer and he's, he's put to death, that is an execution not based upon the wrath of men, though oftentimes we characterize it that way, people go around with microphones, and should, you know, should this guy be put to death, and I've been hurt and I want to see justice, and so people out of their own you know, sense of, of, of vengeance or, or bereavement want to see someone put to death. The civil magistrate is less passionate than that, maybe. If, uh, less personally passionate. The, 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 the direction of the civil magistrate is to be a minister of God. To minister the wrath and justice of God when the situation is correct and right. Now this makes sense, at least in our context. So we'll look at Romans 13. If you just kind of glance back at Romans 12:19, right before the end of the chapter. Remember we're told to, Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. We're told not to revenge ourselves, but give place to wrath. And in fact, our job is to like, give food to our enemies when they're hungry. 
to give you know, water to them when they're thirsty. And, and so he coals a fire on their head. It's God's job to distribute vengeance, to execute vengeance. And he doesn't just do it of himself. He does it through human means. He does it by way of the state and the sword of the state. The, the sword of the government, which we see that same wrath at play here in verse 4. For he is the servant of God, the deacon of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath, God's wrath, on the wrongdoer. So we have an agent of God's wrath on earth. So uh, Martin Luther famously called the state God's hangman. Good. So that, that's one aspect of it. Good. The, the executing the justice of God, even as a hangman does. But that's not all. There's a fuller picture given us here in chapter 13. Also the state promoting good. But we're, we're focused here on, on this issue of, of God's wrath here being ministered by, by the hand of men who wouldn't even acknowledge God. Right? Who, wouldn't, who wouldn't have a, a thought in the world that they're a deacon, a servant of God in administering this wrath. But they are. I want you to get that. Just because someone doesn't think there's something, doesn't mean they're not that. Right? They, they can be what God says they are, even if they have no notion that they are what God says they are. That goes in a lot of ways. That goes for a justification. Right? We were just talking this morning about, the, about justification and regeneration and so on. We may look to ourselves and say, how, how am I just? How am I right before God? All I see is my own sin. But we look to Christ. We look through that promise of our baptism that we're buried with Christ and say, no, Christ's righteousness is mine. God looks at me through Christ, even though I can't see it, but God does. And he tells me that, and I believe what God says. And it's a similar sort of uh, dynamic here where we might look at the governor, say Kate Brown, for instance, of our own state, and say, well, it's fair to say she probably doesn't think of herself as a deacon, a minister of God, in, um, in, in the exacting vengeance and judgment and the wrath of God. But that's what she is, whether she thinks it or not. Whether she acts in accordance with it or not, that's still how she's constituted and what human government is. That's an important thing for us. But Christians, as we have that power, maybe as we, as we would like to, even in the sense of uh, Hebrews 11 there, like to see justice established, like to see big you know, countries and states and counties and cities run on faithful biblical principles and law. I think that would be a good thing for us. Uh, but we want to do it as Christians, not like the Gentiles who lord it over each other. I'll read you a little quote here from a, uh, a fellow named Rusus John Rush Dooney. Uh, if you don't know Rush Dooney, you should. He's a great scholar of the 20th century, and really the progenitor of the Reconstructionist um, you know, stream of thought, which has been highly influential on in me, which is to say, taking the Old Testament and the laws of it seriously. Not apart from Christ, not as if the crucifixion and resurrection didn't happen, but as Christians looking to the law of God and really trying to be informed by it. Not unlike what we read in Psalm 119 a little bit earlier. Here's what he says. In spite of the commonplace abuse of the term, civil officers are still called public servants. Because of Romans 13.4, so describes them. They are ministers, deacons, or servants. It is the Christian heritage which leads to this usage. The goal of, the goal of quote, the princes of the Gentiles, unquote, of their unregenerate society is to exercise dominion over men and make them servants of other men. This leads to a society of vultures, all men seeking to prey on other men. It leads to radical conflicts, disorders, and stresses. On the other hand, 
a diaconal theology, and what he's talking about here is a, a servanthood theology, that the civil magistrate is a servant of God, a deacon of God. Um, it, on the other hand, a diaconal theology sees Christ the King giving his life as a ransom for many, and as one who came to minister, not to be ministered unto. It is therefore the duty of every Christian to manifest the same diaconate, you know, the same service, in his own life. A diaconal society is one of mutual interdependence and service, a society in which men seek to meet, seek to meet needs in Christ's name. A vulture society will self-destruct. A diaconal society will prosper and flourish. What Rush Duty is doing there is saying this works not just in our own lives individually, that we're servants of God, but it works in the public realm as well. The, the public magistrate is public. It's part of the service to society, not just to the church, but even so, the attitude with which that, that magistrate approaches his work can be one of self-service and, and self-aggrandizement or one of service to others. And he says, this is the Christian model. This is the Christian model, and it applies not just to Christians, who if they want to be first should be last, and so on, but it even applies in the state and the social realms as well, where this, this, this part of service, of, of giving to others, of serving God, all the way up to the highest of the civil magistrates applies. Now, the sword is a very real and serious business. The, the, the putting of someone to death is a grave and serious and solemn reality. But it is given to men to do so as servants of God as deacons of God, to do that work because humanity is made in God's image. And if man sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So there's a fear there. And Paul says that. He says, if, if, you're, if you're an evildoer, fear the magistrate, because they don't have the power of the sword in vain. Now I want you to think of that for a second. We'll, we'll kind of wrap around on this and be done. Paul tells those who are wicked to fear to fear the human authorities, because these human authorities are God's ministers of vengeance, of wrath. And they are to fear. Now, fear is something that we know a lot about each of us individually. Um, but I think as a society as well, we've, we've seen in the last couple of years, fear really grip uh, society and, and, and what that does to people like now. And so fear, fear is a powerful reality. We see the perfect love casts out fear, but we need to figure out why we're fearing. What's the fear? Now, Paul says, fear the magistrate, because he doesn't have the sword in vain. But I want you to think a little more deeply about fear and why it is that we fear at all. Since, therefore, the author of Hebrews says, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ himself, likewise partook in the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. There's your Christus Victor, by the way. As far as you know, Jesus goes and destroys the power of death. He's victorious over the, over the one who has the power of death, Satan. That's Christus Victor. That's Christ the Victor. That's Christ overcoming. That's Christ defeating his enemies. And amen. But with what effect? That he will, through death, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and, here we go, deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Men, women, children, we fear death. And through that fear of death and the judgment behind that death are made lifelong slaves. We're slaves to the mundane, to our pleasures, to anything that will take our mind away from 
the reality of death and judgment. Jesus Christ came, Christian, listen, to free us from that. By death. By going to death for us. He's freed us, not only from the bondage to it, but from the fear of death as well. What a Savior we have who comes and takes on our guilt, even though He Himself knew no sin. That we should be freed from the bondage of fear of death because what do we have to fear? Grave, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Christ Jesus has overcome it all. And Christians, so have you, sitting right there, as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is for you, as a Christian, just a portal into glories unknown. It's not a scary deal. It's a glorious deal, because Christ has overcome death and the power of it. And it's taken captive Satan and the keys. It's all his, Christian. It's all in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ, through his apostles, says, Now, you wicked men, fear. Fear these men who bear the sword. But Jesus blows us one bigger and says, Don't just fear those men who hold the sword. Because all they can do is kill the body. Who should you really fear? God, who after your body's dead, can cast your soul into everlasting torment. The second death, which of course be the resurrection under, under that torment. So, Christian, we're always called to fear God. And the living God is scary. Right? It's not just the wrath of men that should be feared, but the wrath of God Almighty behind that sword it's just a sort of men. Have you perceived? Listen. Have you understood? Have you, have you got a hold of God's wrath for you? That you deserve that wrath. That you're under a condemnation because of your own sin. And the more you pursue that, the more you understand that, the more that clicks together in your head, you're like, yep, yeah, God is just and I'm wicked, the greater the gospel is. Because it's not you freeing yourself from that. It's God Almighty through His Son freeing you from bondage to death and fear that's rightly yours out of sheer grace and goodness and love in Christ Jesus. Jesus tasted death for us. But He also came back from the dead. And all of that, Christian, is yours. As you're baptized into Christ, as you trust Him, as you rest in Him, all of that is yours. Amen and glory. By way of conclusion, humans are made in the image of God, and that's great. That gives us all kinds of benefits and responsibilities. One of those responsibilities is to protect human life, to to glory in the image of God in humanity, and uh, not to shed man's blood unfaithfully or unlawfully. God is merciful. We see that with Adam and Eve and Cain. But he's also just. We see that in the flood, all in these first few chapters of the Bible. And this justice of God is instituted then in capital punishment in the hands of men. Giving men the power of violence and the death for particular crimes, particular breaking of laws, that they should be executed or something on the way up to executed. So capital punishment, though controversial, is certainly clearly given in the Bible to humans to do faithfully and to do according to God's word. Therefore, capital punishment is not murder. And so when the scripture says you shall not murder, it's not talking about capital punishment, just because, as I mentioned before, in the very same chapter, or next chapter, chapter 21, we see, no, if, if, if someone takes one someone's life, they forfeit their life. Life for life, uh, stripe for stripe, eye for eye, and so on.
So the Old Testament is quite clear on capital punishment. But we find here, even though it's one passage, maybe one of just a few passages in the New Testament, the New Testament is also very clear on the sword. This isn't, this isn't a hard thing to figure out. It might be a hard thing to figure out how to meet out or how to work out, but that is the case, that the, 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 the powers that God has given, particularly to the state, the government, to, uh, to have the power of the sword, that is the power of death over evil doers, is very clear. And it's a fearful and a terrible, a terrible thing. The taking of human life, even the taking of uh, the human life of a convicted murderer, is a fearful and terrible thing. But God calls us to be faithful, not to be fear, uh, afraid and terrified of these things, but to be afraid and terrified of Him. That we should obey Him. That we should love and honor Him in our obedience. So the New Testament is quite clear as well. And uh, God's power made manifest is behind it all. Both the power of God in His justice and wrath, which outside of Jesus Christ we're all exposed to. There's no way out. But also the power of God in redemption. That eternal love of God to send His own Son to be our sacrifice, our Redeemer. Uh, that we who deserve death and hell find that we have life eternal and glory because of Jesus, the Christ of God. Are your hearts not joyful? Be thankful that God has freed you and redeemed you from the curse of death and the curse of the law, that you mean no longer be slaves in bondage to the fear of death, but alive in Christ in service to your living head, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be faithful to Him, even in things that are hard and difficult and kind of scary in this life. Let us follow Christ together, our King and our Savior. Amen.